Today on episode number 264 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Dr. Melissa Salazar shares about serving our Hispanic students. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm so pleased today to have the founder of Escala Educational Services, Dr. Melissa L. Salazar, joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. She has over 20 years of experience in the field of education as an instructional coach, curriculum designer, grant writer, and professor of math and science education. Melissa launched Escala Educational Services in 2013 to address Growing Collegiate Interest in Best Practices in Teaching and Learning. And Escala is Spanish for Striving, is a consortium of higher education consultants based in the U.S. Southwest who are committed personally and professionally to increasing the retention and graduation rates of underrepresented students in higher education. Escala works specifically with Hispanic-serving institutions, HSIs, to close the gap in educational access and completion rates for Latinos, mainly through faculty development programming and remedial program evaluation. Melissa, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you, Bonnie, for having me on. And I forgot to tell you, but it's my birthday. Oh my gosh, happy birthday! Thank you. I actually scheduled it for my birthday because this is going to be a fun, different thing for me to do today than my usual work. I guess so. Well, I only wish I would have planned a This Is Your Life episode. (laughs) And guess who's here? You don't even have to ask me how old I am. Yes, I'm Well, it's wonderful to celebrate you and the work that you do, because I know that is your life. That is, you know, the sense of purpose that you bring to the work that you do is absolutely infectious and very evident from the moment I met you until now, all this time later. Well, thank you. Thanks. So I mentioned to you that I, as of this particular recording on your birthday, (laughs) I I have only watched a tiny snippet of Brene Brown's Netflix special. One of the podcast listeners suggested it, that it would be good for listeners to watch. And I actually planned a listening party at our campus next week. But I did watch enough of it to hear her say this little thing about when she meets strangers on an airplane, that if she doesn't feel like being chatty, she can just say, oh, what do you do for a living? And she says, I study shame. What do you do? (laughs) I thought I would ask you, Melissa, what do you do for a living? Or maybe, you know, how do you explain this to strangers on a plane? Well, it's funny, because I spend a lot of time on planes. So I related to that story when I heard her say that, too, that it can be really challenging to explain quickly what I do. But generally, down to like just a one sentence explanation, Escala, the business that I started and now run, is a group of people who coach professors on how to work with students better so that they can learn better, succeed in college, and graduate. 
So we've, we've come down to that. I don't use any, like, I don't say higher education and I don't use words like Hispanic serving institutions because a lot of people still aren't familiar with what those are. But in general, it's coaching perfect college professors. And most people know that that's, that's unusual, but sometimes it is like, you know, a, a, a pin dropping. They're like, huh, that's interesting. I don't know what to do with that information. And they turn away and go, okay, I'll go back to my book. <laughs> it tends to be one of those things that people do too, as a culturally just polite thing. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? But not that they actually mostly don't want to dive in too deep. <laughs> yeah. And, but, it, but, you know, everybody has a college story who's been to college or, mm-hmm. you know, if they're a, a parent or a grandparent, they have a college story. So sometimes it does start a whole litany of complaints about college teaching and this one professor and sometimes it's on the positive but most of the time I get to hear about the one professor that was the meanest person they've ever encountered and you know Mm -hmm. which is all great information for me but um, it's not a job that's really been promoted or created in in some big way so people are like well how did you get to do that and then I have to launch into the longer story and I'm never sure if they really want to know because it's a long story but you know yeah they they're like that's unusual that isn't what I thought you'd say so and that is part of your story too that I'd love to hear more about because so many times students we just had many of us had graduation at our institutions and there's such a sense that these young people have of just help me figure out the path, help me figure out the career path. There's something that I haven't learned yet, a book I haven't come across, or just some little bit of advice. And the fact is, our paths are so rarely planned out. And I know yours was not either. So could you talk about how you got started in this work? Yeah, it's a crazy and I I feel like I'm playing catch up with people like you who really have a lot of experience in higher ed. And, you know, it's kind of hard for me to admit, but I did not study higher education in my own pathway through higher ed myself. So my background is actually in chemistry and chemical engineering believe it or not. And so that's what my bachelor degree was in, was in chemistry, chemical engineering. But I knew that I didn't want to be a scientist. So I was drawn to teaching mainly because I had just absolutely bombed my undergraduate experience. Um, I went to UC Berkeley, had a very negative experience just navigating a large institution that was very competitive. And all of that caused me to think that I just wasn't really going to be a very good scientist. Even though I was interested in chemistry, I just didn't know what to do with myself. So I think like a lot of students, you know, you're on the degree pathway and then you're realizing along the way that maybe this isn't a good fit, but it's too late. So I I just finished the degree after actually dropping out for a year and not knowing if this was the right path. I was like, I better just go back and finish it. So I had a very poor GPA, was really discouraged about myself. So this is going to sound terrible, but I actually went into teaching because I didn't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of teacher friends and they had encouraged me, you know, just try this out. So I was actually a teaching assistant in a science classroom in an elementary school in the San Francisco Bay Area for a couple of years and then got a job at Lawrence Hall of Science, which is run by UC Berkeley. And it's a big science education center. And that's where I really found my calling, which to me was talking about science to non-scientists and also working with children who were learning science. And they taught me a lot about how to organize information. It's really my early training in what I do now is just how do I help engage people in a topic, any topic. 
So they gave me the framework for that. And I was like 21, 22 when I started that job and I worked there for several years. And so I bounced around in the science education world before deciding I wanted to go to grad school. But at that point, I was still thinking of myself as a scientist. So I got a master's degree in food science and technology and still wasn't thinking about education as a career. I don't know why, you know, I had already done it, but I was like, oh, maybe I'll go back into science. But again, not just wasn't clicking yet. And then when I was in my master's program, someone in the PhD program in education pulled me aside and said, you know, you're really doing a lot of work that feels like you should blend the two of your degrees in chemistry and food science with education. So I I went over to the PhD program, applied, and it was a whole new world. I had never taken an education class in my life. You know, I was in my 30s and I had finished these two masters and the bachelors. And I was like in this whole new world. I remember my very first class as a PhD in education. I didn't even know what they were talking about. I just sat there. I was like, what are these words like pedagogy and andragogy? And they were just post-colonial, you know, people were throwing out all these words, even like sociology and anthropology terms. I had no idea what they were talking about. So I spent about a a year in that program just listening and looking things up at home, (laughs) trying to figure (laughs) out what are these education people talking about? So I feel like that's helped me a lot because I have I have kind of still new eyes, I think, on education. Even after finishing my PhD in education, I still feel like I'm learning. And then, you know, I didn't take any classes in higher ed. So now I do a lot of background reading just to catch up. Like, you know, how did higher education have a culture and where did that come from? Because I didn't take any classes in that. So anyway, that's been my career pathway. And when I graduated with my PhD, I was still thinking, okay, I'm going to go back into STEM education, but I did it as an instructional coach. So after I finished my PhD, I was an instructional coach for several years before thinking of this idea for a Scala. So I was a K-12 instructional coach and then noticed that I was teaching college at that point as well, which a lot of other PhDs do, you know, they teach an adjunct here and there. I noticed that my college colleagues were the ones that really wanted to know strategies to engage students. And I said, well, I know all that, but I only know it in the context of K-12. I wonder what it would be like to translate some of these things that K-12 teachers get trained in and train college professors. And I looked around and sure enough, I couldn't find very many programs for college professors to go to. And this was um, 2012 that I had the idea And I said, well, let's give it a shot. And let's ask if some colleges around here want to sign up for a program. I had a colleague, Kathy Berryhill, who still works with us in Escala. And we dreamt up a program. And just from word of mouth, it grew and grew and grew into seven years later. We've worked with several hundred faculty and more than 30 different institutions of higher ed across the U.S. So obviously, the need was there. And I just kind of had it at the right place, right time. And then, you know, I guess we did a good enough job in the beginning that it really became word of mouth so that now we haven't had to do a lot of marketing. It's, it's really been fun to have people call us and say, well, I heard about you guys on this and that, or I had a colleague who went to this. Can you tell me more? So it's really been a network of folks that have really sold our program by going to it themselves. So we haven't felt like we've had to formally market the program hardly at all. 
The group of institutions that you serve are known as Hispanic serving institutions. And I know this is a dangerous question to ask because you do know a lot about that. But for I mean, we have, to keep it short. we have lots of people listening and not all of them will be familiar with what that entails. Sure. So Hispanic serving institutions, because it's a mouthful, they're usually shortened to HSIs, the acronym HSI. And HSIs are a federal designation of an institution that's, that's based on enrollment. And the enrollment criteria for being an HSI is that you have a quarter or more of your students declaring themselves as Hispanic or Latino backgrounds. That doesn't happen automatically. There's a lot of things that the college needs to do. They need to apply to the government and, and get designated from Department of Ed and get on a list. But once you get on that list, you are eligible for funds to apply for funds that are designated just for HSIs. So when I tell people about it, you know, most people are familiar with HBCUs, the historically black colleges and universities or native serving institutions. And it's it's similar, but it's not because those institutions often have mission designations, meaning that they started that way. And that was part of the reason the college exists. And HSIs are very different because many of them have nothing in their mission that says anything about serving Latinos, but their enrollment meant that now they're serving a large number of students of Latino backgrounds. And then they go, well, what are we supposed to be doing? So the big question in the HSI world right now is, what does it mean to be serving? It's not enrolling, but now we're talking like they're here. What do we do? So we tapped into that by saying to ourselves, well, we have a lot of experience teaching Latinos here in New Mexico, where Escala grew out of, and almost all of our colleges are HSIs. In fact, I think every single college in New Mexico is an HSI. So we felt like we had some experience that we could help other transitioning HSIs around the country learn more about what the institution needs to do and what professors should be thinking about. Now that we know the definition of HSIs, I know there's so much more to it. So could you talk about really the importance of these kinds of institutions? Sure. So the the importance of HSIs to me are that this is where equity work is being done. And I'm sure your listeners know about equity and its role in higher education and that this is something I think really grew out of K-12. K-12 educators have been hearing about equity for decades, but more recently, I think higher education started to look at subgroups of students that were not succeeding at the same rates, meaning that they were not being retained, they were not graduating, for some reason they're stuck in different majors, they're not across the board at the institution enrolled in the same ways. So institutions were, I think, for us, you know, just seeing over the last seven years of our own growth that institutions are now have equity officers, they have diversity officers. We did not see that seven years ago. So I think the focus that HSIs have is providing equity, meaning greater success in higher education, more degrees granted to Latinos. So there's a lot of really neat stuff on excellencia and education that shows the importance of HSIs and providing equity for the growing number of Latino students in the U.S., And that is a huge group, uh, a huge demographic that we need to serve because they're also in the K-12 population, which means HSIs to me are just going to keep growing 
So every year, Excellencia puts out how many HSIs there are, and I think there's over 500 this year. There was 470 last year, so you can even see this cool chart they have of just, it's skyrocketing. So there's there's a need for all of us to understand whether you're in an HSI or not, that Latinos are a very large demographic of students coming into college. And I always like to joke, you know, if you're not in an HSI, you will be in one soon. So (laughs) this is something that everybody needs to pay attention to. But professors in HSIs, it's like, this is what you've signed up for. These are the students that are here. Even if uh, the demographic shifted rapidly, you know, your job is always to serve who's there. And we can't wish away. We can't talk about what used to be and go backwards. There's absolutely no going backwards with Latinos in education in the U.S. So it's pretty exciting, I think, to be teaching in an HSI and I know you I know you think that, too, because I've been to your college and but sometimes it can be a little bit. I think professors feel trepidatious about discussing it because they're just not sure they're not from that community. They're not they've never taught large numbers of Latinos. So they're confused, I think, a little bit and want some guidance about what it means to have large numbers of Latinos in their if their institution. Unfortunately, one of the things that happens in these dramatic changes, because they really it is happening across the country, is that it can unroot or expose some of our systemic racism. And a classic example of that to me would be that we start othering those Hispanic students who are joining our institutions, and then we start to describe that entire population as underprepared. And it becomes this whole thing of they're not ready. What What is going on in those K through 12? <laughs> they don't do it right. And they're, they're not ready. They're not ready. And I know one of the things that you do so well is to shift minds toward an asset-based mindset. Could you talk a little bit about how that language changes, how that paradigm changes? And I know it can't be as easy as you make it look sometimes because... <laughs> It just can't be because that's how systemic racism works. But could you could you share some of what goes on in terms of your approach and where where we can be thinking differently there? Sure. And it, it's such a big question. I really think that this is the root of what Escala does now. And I think we've come to that place after many years. I mean, it might be surprising for you to know that the first two or three years that we did programs, we actually avoided issues of race and ethnicity. We tried to talk about our program as you're going to come and learn how to be a good teacher. And, and, and then we tried to slip in a few things about Latinos and Latino students and Latino culture kind of on the side, you know, we were, we were actually a little bit nervous about it ourselves, you know, mainly because I don't have anthropology as my background. I'm again, a STEM educator and these things weren't coming right out of my mouth. You know, it's like, I just didn't have the training to talk to people about race and ethnicity in the fluent way that I do now. (laughs) So we noticed when we were doing these programs in the first few years that people would just say things like you just said, you know, like, I'm not sure they belong here. You know, this other, these othering statements kind of pushing back on the the whole idea of that I can be a good teacher for all of these students. They would say, well, you know, and I don't mean to insult anybody who comes to our programs, but it was just a pattern that we could tell when people get nervous about not being a good teacher, they push back on it's being, it's the student's fault. You know, there's nothing I can do for these students. So we decided after a few years of this, that we had to unpack that to get anywhere with, with folks in a big, in a more 
substantial way. We needed to say, let's put all of your attitudes on the table and discuss this and kind of look in the mirror. And that's when we developed our deficit and asset-based cultural component of our program that we do pretty much no matter where we go. We always start off by talking about deficit and asset-based thinking and language. I mean, we know now, right, that our cognition, whatever we say is a reflection of how we're thinking and processing things. So that when we check our language, we check our thinking as well. So that's where that comes from, is that we're saying, yes, you may feel like your language is shifting in our program, or we're asking you to use language that's unfamiliar to you, but that's the disruption we're looking for, is that you think a little bit before you start spurting out something that you actually go, oh my God, like that means that I think that student doesn't have the capacity to learn. So we really talk a lot now about if you're saying the student is underprepared, like whether or not they're underprepared is really not the issue. The issue is that they're there in your classroom. So what can you do now? How, how can you reach out to the student and understand what they can do and how they can be engaged? And how can you reach out and also tell them they have assets? Because guess what? The students have deficit attitudes about themselves. It's not just, the, it's not the instructor's only. So, you know, I'll talk a little bit later, hopefully, about, you know, what we're doing now to kind of talk to professors about the patterns of thinking students have about themselves, because we think this is one of the key problems that Latino students as a whole have about themselves as a group coming into college. They have heard, guess what? They've heard adults in their life say they're underprepared and that they, they can't do college, and they have been through all sorts of educational traumas in the K-12 system. So for us to talk about them that way, the students know, you know, and they're no dummies. They can hear it and they also can kind of hear it in the way you express your expectations for them. So we call it like deficit versus asset-based thinking. And we, we compare and contrast the ways we can say something to a student. But we really also feel like we draw on Laura Rendon's work and Tara Yoso have, have teamed up to do a lot of work on Latinos in college and they interview students who have succeeded and say, what were your assets? What did you draw on in order to succeed and make it through college? Especially if you're a STEM major, you know, doing these really rigorous programs that Latinos typically haven't been as successful in. And they say, well, my family, my family is my asset, my community, the fact that I have faith, which I think is you know, a wonderful thing for professors to know is that Latinos aren't coming in with only deficits from their K-12 backgrounds. They are coming in with substantial assets that need to be put on the table. And if they know those, then they can have something to work with that's coming from a positive perspective instead of just going, oh, oh my gosh, you know, what am I going to do and throwing up your hands, which I think most people don't want to do, but it's a human aspect of feeling unsuccessful. And so I think for us to demonstrate, you know, look, there's research done on this and students do come carrying these assets with them, use them. And then they go, oh, okay, you know, I can, I can do that. So we're always just trying to educate so that people feel like they have some strategy with students that they may have been previously unfamiliar with. There was that study that came out about nine months ago that shared the oh-so-obvious conclusion that if we as professors believe that our students aren't capable of doing things, 
gee, they will be less likely to be capable of doing things. And then also what you're describing is this is an old leadership principle from Stephen Covey way back in the day of things that we can control and influence and spending our time focused on those things. I can control my class planning. I can control what how I choose to spend that time. I can control my parts of the way I show up for the work that I do. I can't really control what happens in with students once they leave my classroom or once before they even got to me. And it's not going to be really helpful to me or to them if I spend a lot of time focused on that. In fact, I'm going to have limiting beliefs and I'm going to make all kinds of assumptions that are not going to be helpful. Right, right. And, you know, it's, I, like I said, you know, this is not if someone's feeling right now listening to it going, well, but it is true that they're underprepared, which we do have in our workshops. People will raise their hand and go, well, do you want me to ignore the fact that they're mm. underprepared? And we're like, absolutely not. But let's take a look at how people can be accelerated. Let's take a look that this isn't, that doesn't mean it's a done deal. You know, and I think that's what we, what you just said is that you can show up for your work. There are things that have been shown to accelerate students' learning who may have not have had that science lab in high school, who may actually have a, a fixed mindset of themselves. You know, what can you actually do because the brain is not done? Mm-hmm. And so then we talk about all the things about the brain so that people understand, as I, like you said, that study was just, it felt like a no does study, but it's not yet. People still, professors have sometimes a very fixed mindset about students when they walk in, you know, they see the student looking a certain way, slouching in their chair or not making eye contact, whatever it might be. We all have these, these biases and it makes us lower our expectations or kind of just jump ahead and go, well, that student's probably not going to pass my class or whatever you're thinking in the back of your head. So we're trying to figure out how do you get to those narratives to know they even exist because they happen so quickly right? Like you just like, don't even realize they're happening. So if we just pause and look at the way it looks out loud going, oh my gosh, you know, have I ever said these things to my students? Holy cow. Like that whole myth, you know, about the professor saying, it's not a myth, but you know, it's kind of mythology. Look to your left, look to your right. Mm -hmm. One, only one of you is going to succeed. You know, those kinds of things we hope are in the past, but you know, all of those kinds of things can come out of your mouth maybe implicitly or explicitly and the students are just waiting to be told that they don't belong you know so there's a lot of research on Latinos and belonging in the college classroom and that they're very very sensitive to the professor whether or not the professor believes in their ability to learn so that we think is like one of the biggest things we've got to attack is that if you're using language that shows students you're not sure if they can learn then really you're not serving your Latinos very well because we know that they're a very sensitive group to, is the professor really on my side? Do they want to help me here? Because they're already assuming a lot of them that you don't. That's a surprise to professors who are very well-meaning and really want to do good work. They think the students all think that they deserve to be there. So that, that's usually a surprise to them that, oh my gosh, they don't think they need to, they don't, they need me to do that? Really? You know, oh, I can do that. <laughs> so that's a good thing that comes out of that. What have you found makes faculty motivated to make changes in their teaching? I should say to make changes in our teaching because I'm part of this too. (laughs) Oh, it's been such a fascinating journey for me with motivation because like I said earlier, you know, these are, these are social science principles and cognitive science principles about motivation. So we've done a lot of work looking at 
what what motivates humans in general and then trying to develop a program that is parallel to those so that we're not beating anyone over the head saying you should. So we try to actually stay away from what we think is demotivational. So I'll talk about that for a second first, which is that faculty come to PD thinking they're going to be told that they're not doing it right, that they're going to be scolded. There's there's a lot of PD in the past, I think, that has been like, here's the best way and you guys should be doing this. And if you're not doing it, then you've done a bad job. And, and so I think, you know, as humans, we're kind of like, oh, am I going to be okay when I come to this PD or am I going to find out I've been a really bad teacher? So I think that's, we've heard over and over and over faculty appreciate that we don't scold. Like we don't ever say, how many of you raise your hand have ever done this really terrible strategy? You know, like we don't, we just stay away from that because faculty are really, I think an overachieving group and are feel passionate about their work. So I think the motivational side is tapping into that faculty want to do a good job. They want to feel like they're serving all their students well and that they don't want students to fail. They really don't. I think as a group, and we used to hear in the early days, you know, deans and sometimes administrators would say, oh my gosh, you need to like do this to all my faculty. They all want students to fail. And I just don't think that's actually really what's happening. I think sometimes faculty are just not sure how to assess and aren't really sure if they're the, how to tell if students are learning or not and only use grades to kind of sort the students into learning and not learning, but don't know what they could have done. So I think what's motivational is that faculty that come to our programs, by and large, want to feel successful. So if we can help guide them down a path where they feel tiny successes at first, then they will go and make bigger changes. So a lot of our programs ask people to kind of get the toe in the water, kind of look at things, hear how other people have done things. They love talking with others about teaching, you know, almost without exception. So our programs are designed to have a lot of discussion at tables and with peers. So we think the motivational pieces are really that it gets to be social, you get to share your ideas. And then we also really make a huge point that they know what they're doing. We come from the assumption that you're a very competent teacher to start, that you're not incompetent and you're here again because you have a deficit. But you're here because you have assets and we're going to show you how you can use them even better. So I think the motivational pieces that we really highlight now are that you get to talk about yourself from a positive perspective and what you're doing well, not just, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm doing a terrible job and they're going to tell me I'm doing a terrible job and and all that kind of stuff. So it's really it's been fun to kind of tap into energizing faculty rather than. I can see sometimes when people come into our PD, like we had, a, we had a person come in once with a giant book, like, you know, like a thousand page book and he put it down in front of me and he sat at the first front table and he made a big display of showing me that he wasn't going to pay attention. You know, it was kind of like this, here you go, like, go ahead, make me pay attention during this PD for the next two days. And I just went over and met him and was trying to be nice and whatever. And he never got the book out. You know, he like pushed it to the side once we started and realized he was going to be accountable for sharing ideas at his table and he never opened the book. And at the end of the PD, I said, you know, I just can't help but notice that you brought this giant book. And he goes, well, yeah, every PD I've ever been to has been so boring that I've needed to bring something to do. And he goes, but I never got a chance to open it. 
<laughs> during your workshop. And I was like, well, good. I felt good that you didn't open it because I was a little like worried that you, you, you were, you know, going to try to read it while we were working together here. And he said, no, you know, this whole thing was so actively done and so, you know, highly timed and specific about what I had to do that I didn't have any time. So anyway, I think people have had bad experiences with PD in the past and I don't blame them. I've had them too. And so we try to not waste time so that people don't get demotivated from that as well. That what you talked about regarding this belief that you have that people are coming in with those assets really shows up. I, when I went to your workshop, I was not expecting, I I knew it was going to be great. (laughs) I I didn't know it would be so great for me that, that I would never have that sense. I just, you so valued the collective wisdom that was present and then also you are brilliant at keeping things active. It is very, very difficult to sit for those long periods of time. We have had people on the podcast before, at least one guy, Mike Cross comes to mind, who went back to school so that he could better understand what it's like for students. And I also know that there was another person's daughter who went back to school. It was Wiggins um, who wrote Backwards Design. His daughter went back to school at one point and just talked about the surprise of the exhaustion of sitting and that she had really forgotten that as an educator. And it is hard to sit for three days. And it, I mean, it flew by. It really is so important to be thinking about that from a perspective of just energy levels. And, and if those energy levels go so far down, then we're just not going to be able to learn as well. It's really wonderful. I would do want to ask you about how teaching is a reflection of faculty's own cultural backgrounds, because I don't want to miss talking about that before we go to the next part of the show. So the cultural aspect of teaching, again, has been another thing that Escala has grown to embrace because, again, like I told you earlier, that we thought, oh, let's just approach our PD from like a culture-free zone and everyone will feel safe and, you know, we can talk about HSIs and, and Latino students, but let's talk about it without making anyone uncomfortable. And I think after, again, a couple years of realizing that wasn't really hitting the right spots that we needed to start talking about how teaching teaching is cultural work, just like everything we do in life, that there is a culture that you're exuding yourself as a faculty. And I think what one of those moments, you know, that you have in the shower is that after a few years of talking about that Latino students have culture, we realized we had forgotten that faculty have culture. And there's several cultures going on. One of them is your institutional culture. Another one is your personal family culture, whoever you might be and how your family trained you is a culture that you have. And then there's also the classroom itself. So how you design the class and your discipline that you've been trained in, all of these things have cultural elements that I think are very complex. So we now ask faculty to spend almost an entire day with us during our biggest program, the certificate, they spend an entire day looking at the various aspects of their culture. And that could be the kinds of training they've had, whether or not they teach biology versus anthropology or English, those have their own disciplinary cultures. So that the attitudes and beliefs that they have about how to set up a class, what their syllabus might even say or look like, and then their interactions with students and the expectations they have for how students interact with one another, all of those are based on what the faculty's decisions are. Like we make decisions, all these instructional decisions 
come out of somewhere. So when we can bubble up some of these more invisible aspects of ourselves and make them explicit and visible, we can go, oh my gosh, is that actually the best way to do this? Or do I just do this because I've been watching professors teach my whole educational career and that's how I thought you should do it? Or can we question that and say, hmm, what would it look like if you have a biology class of 90 students, but they turn to one another and speak instead of listening the whole time or doing things, every, everything individually? Is there a way for a biology student to have an interaction with someone during your lecture? So I know those sound really simple, but sometimes these cultural attitudes are so tightly held that people say, well, no, it's impossible. It's impossible. And so the reason they say it's impossible is because they haven't considered why they think that's the best way to learn. So it's, it's been a really interesting experience to start unpacking culture because um, most of the faculty that come to our trainings are white and have Northern European family descent. Sometimes people come and just say out loud, well, I don't have any culture. And we're like, okay, well, let's look at what Northern European cultural traditions are and, and how education institutions actually have grown out of some of these Northern European ideas and values. And so that's why it feels sometimes like it matches you and why you've been so successful and why students who are not from an individualistic cultural background might feel like this is very strange that I'm being asked to do everything individually, that I'm being tested individually, that I'm supposed to leave my classmates behind and succeed and, and be the best, you know, that those aren't collectivist values. So these are big switches for them. So I think this has been now the most fascinating thing that I've found from talking with faculty is that they really haven't considered their own culture. They thought they were just going to study Latinos in general, but didn't realize we were going to make them turn the lens on themselves, but find that they're, they're fascinated, you know, that they do have a culture. Oh, okay. You know, and I didn't realize that was a cultural decision I was making about the way I do my tests. So that's, that's the, the story of culture in the classroom with us. Before we get to the recommendations segment, I wanted to say thanks to today's sponsor for the episode, and that is Text Expander. Those of you that have been listening for a while know that Text Expander is just one of those tools that's essential to my own workflow. My philosophy is that I can use this tool to automate some parts of the work that I do in order that I can be more authentic and more present because of that time that gets saved. So what Text Expander does is it allows you to create super, super easy, what are called snippets, little text bits, little shortcuts that you type in and wherever you're typing, whether it's an email or whether it's on a form or whether you're in Word or, or pages, wherever you're typing, it will allow you to have those little type things you type turn into something longer or something harder to remember, like a link or like a phone number, for example. And it really does boost your productivity because it's just quick and easy to make these snippets or in my case, to modify them. It's really easy to get started with Text Expander, but as you learn more, one of the things I, I figured out recently was having the subject line start out for an email I might send repeatedly. And then it automatically tabs tabs down to the body of the email and I can even fill in information. So dear, and then it'll open up and it'll allow me to fill in the person's name. And it will uh, also, once I put it in there, I can go back and customize it. That's what I do. For example, when I tell people about 
The recommendations segment, which we're about to hear with Melissa and I, is I have an email that does that for me, but then I can customize it for the person that I'm emailing so that they know this is an email message specifically for them. And I'm excited about having them on the show. So there's all kinds of things we can do. You can get 20% off of your first year. That's that's part of the sponsorship. It's a gift to me and a gift to you. If you go to textexpander.com slash podcast, you'll get 20% off your first year. And you also can access that link in the show notes for today's episode so you don't have to remember the link. But let them know that you heard about Text Expander here on Teaching in Higher Ed. And thanks once again to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. This is the point in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I have one that has been going so well for me at work. And that is a quick stress fix. This is a video by a woman named Adrian. She has a channel on YouTube called Yoga with Adrian. She's very silly. <laughs> so, uh, that's the part I like too, because I, if I'm going to do something called yoga, it has to be not very serious because I feel clumsy at it and <laughs> not particularly good speaking of mindsets. But my goodness, five minutes just to stretch a little bit, get out of the chair if we've been sitting too much, it makes such a big difference. And I've been doing this actually two and three times a day <laughs> with someone else in my office. It really just completely makes such a difference. I don't go home as sore if it's a, like a long work day or something. And so that was my recommendation is the quick stress fix. We've got a link to it in the show notes. And Melissa, I get to pass it over to you for your recommendations. Well, I wish I had a silly one, but I was telling you earlier that I'm getting ready for our big summer program. So I'm reading a lot. And so I'm going to be all nerdy and tell people about the, the latest thing that I've been doing is working my way through the PBS documentary series called Latino Americans. And it's mainly because like I've, I've told you before that I don't have a huge background in sociology and anthropology. So I'm doing a history walk for myself of how Latinos have experienced education in the U.S. and history going all the way back to, you know, like the Spanish and colonial times and the it, the very first one I really, really love and would highly recommend that people watch. It's called Foreigners in Their Own Land. And I think it's really relevant for people right now to realize the long, long history of Latinos in the U.S. so that we don't keep focusing on just the immigration issues that we have now, but the long-standing issues that the U.S. Uh, before the United States even existed, that Latinos were here and speaking Spanish. So there's a great line in there that somebody says, one of the historians says, you know, Spanish was spoken before English was in this land. And so, you know, to us have this discussion about which language is more national it's it's really it should have been Spanish, you know, and it's just about power and history that it didn't work out that way. But that the one of the first languages other than the native languages, obviously, that were spoken here is that Spanish predated English as a language. So anyway, it's lots of interesting stuff. And it's it's a great little documentary series. There's, I think, eight episodes that you can watch. It's called Latino Americans on PBS. Oh, that sounds so wonderful. Something to add to my to my TV list. Thank you so much for that. And Melissa, it's so good to connect with you today and to have you on the show. And I've been, I know we've been planning this for quite some time and I've, it's been a conversation I've been looking forward to. And also I get to look forward to being a part of your summer institute and earning my certificate in Hispanic serving <laughs> institutions, which I love, by the way, side note, it's not just a class that we go to. So it's part of a commitment. We have some pre-work that we're doing now. And then there's the actual face-to-face -face time with you and your colleagues. And then it's going to still be some work this fall to continue to make those changes and reflect and do it again. 
Well, I'm so looking forward to you coming. I'm honored that you would think it's worth your time. And I'm looking forward to seeing you and your colleagues from Vanguard there. So thank you so much for, for having me on the show. I really enjoyed it. Everyone else should go check out their website and see what professional development opportunities you could have at your institution, but you better get there fast, right, Melissa? Because your calendar gets booked up. <laughs> yeah, I think we're pretty much booked up for summer, but you can always go check out other things that we do. And it's escalaeducation.com, E-S-C-A-L-A, education, all one word, dot com. And there's lots of information on our on our website about what we do. Thanks again, Melissa. Thank you, Bonnie. Thanks so much to Melissa Salazar for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. It was so great to reconnect with you and to have you share your learning with us about Hispanic-serving institutions. Thanks to all of you for listening. There's going to be a lot of great show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 264. That's today's episode. And if you would rather not have to remember to go find those show notes, you are always welcome to subscribe to the weekly update at teachinginhighered.com slash update. That'll get you weekly emails with the show notes to the most recent episode, as well as a blog written by me. It also gets you an EdTech Essentials ebook that will give you some ideas about how to use technology to enhance your teaching and productivity. Again, you can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. I'll see you next time.